James chapter 5, verse 13. James chapter 5, verse 13. We're going to hopefully get through verse 18 tonight and then next week cover verses 19 and 20 and wrap up our study of the book of James. I'm able to, with you folks, share things and do things in the mind that we wouldn't want to do or couldn't do, say, on a Sunday morning. And uh, tonight's one of those nights where we're going to get, a, at least at first, a, a little bit technical, but I think you're going to see why as we go through this passage. Because for some of you, uh, on Sunday I mentioned this in some of my small churches that I teach here, that um, to me this is one of the most misinterpreted and misunderstood passages of Scripture in all the New Testament. And, and one of the reasons why, I believe, is, is when I hear this passage expounded on television or read it in a book, and it, I, I, I think it's mi- being mishandled, I think it's because it's being misinterpreted. And there's a lot of question about interpreting the Bible and how we interpret it. And, you know, there are people who even say, well, that's the way you interpret it, but we all have our different interpretations. And I believe the Bible clearly uh, tells us that there's only one right interpretation. Many applications, but only one right interpretation. In fact, the Bible challenges us as Christians to interpret the Bible correctly or accurately. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul tells Timothy that as a man or woman of God who wants to be approved by God, let's learn to handle the Word of God accurately or correctly. And that's especially true of those of us who are teaching the Bible. Uh, We are held responsible before God. It's a great privilege to teach the Bible, but it's also a great responsibility. And God will hold Jeff Royce responsible for how accurately and correctly I have handled and taught the Word of God. So I take it very seriously. And when I have over the years interpreted passages or verses, I go back to four keys of interpretation. Uh, Again, this isn't a Bible or seminary class, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here tonight, but the first is grammar. Grammar's huge. God chose to write the New Testament in ancient Greek, which is the most precise language that, that humanity has ever come up with. That's why, as I always say, there's one word for love in the English language, there's five words for love in Greek. And it's very precise. And if, a, if someone really wants to know the message that God has revealed in the New Testament, he really wants to, to, to know it accurately, the Greek language will be a huge help. So grammar is important. Second, context. When you want to come to a correct interpretation of any verse or passage of Scripture, you cannot take it out of its context and make it a pretext. You have to study it and interpret it within its context. So grammar is the first way to interpret the scriptures. Context is the next way. Then the third way is what we call analogically studying it. And what that simply means is not only do I look at the immediate context... But I take what is being taught here and I compare Scripture with Scripture. And I come to an understanding that I know God is not going to contradict Himself. He's not going to say something in the book of James and teach us one thing here and then back over in the Gospel of John teach something that contradicts that. So if I am coming to some seeming contradiction, I know that that's not God, that's me, and I've got to keep studying and keep searching and keep diving into the Scriptures until I come to a place where 
I know God's not contradicting himself, so I've got to come to that place too. And I think the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So we take other passages of Scripture, and we compare all of that together to get the right interpretation. Then finally, the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, John chapter 16, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth and lead us into truth. And we as Christians, when we study the Bible and we read it, we need to rely upon the Holy Spirit. So grammar, context, other scripture passages, and the Holy Spirit are to me the four keys in coming to an accurate understanding of what each passage says. With that in mind, I also want to start out tonight with this. Many times as Christians... We're like, God, if you just tell me what, what it is you want me to do, I'll do it. Well, after reading this passage tonight, we don't have a lot of wiggle room. Because James is going to tell us in certain instances in life, here's what you do. Now, we might not like the answer, but we can't say to God, well, God, you haven't told me what I should do in this situation. James is giving us very clear instructions that when this happens, this is what you should do. It, it sort of reminds me about the importance of response in life. Because a lot of times in life, you know, we don't necessarily know what's coming or see what's coming, and we just have to respond to it. And the way we respond to things is huge. And we can choose to respond rightly, correctly, biblically, or we can choose to respond any way we like. But many times, our response is going to determine the final outcome. Uh, A wrong response can escalate certain situations. A right response can de-escalate situations in our life. And that's why God gives us his word, because many times the principles in his word are the wisdom we need in order to, okay, this situation's happening. Okay, God, I'm going to apply your wisdom in this area so that I can de-escalate the situation. Because I think for most of us as human beings, that's what we want. We don't want to escalate the situation. We don't want to make it any worse. We don't want to make it any bigger than what it already is and snowball into something even bigger than what it is. We want to learn to de-escalate the situation and make it more manageable. And that's what God's word and God's wisdom does. That's what the right response to certain situations in our life does for us. And that's one of the reasons why God gave us the Bible. So with that in mind, we come to chapter five, verse 13, where James says, is anyone unequivocal? Is anyone among you suffering? And the word suffering there means, is anyone in trouble? Is anyone going through any kind of difficulty? Uh, One of the things that I've seen over the years that, that I think does disservice to this passage is when folks come to this passage, they interpret the entire passage based on physical infirmity. That, that someone is suffering physically. And, and I'm not saying that that cannot be one of the applications of this passage, but I think that this passage has a much wider interpretation than just talking about physical healing. Because the word here for suffering is not a word that's used exclusively for somebody going through some kind of physical illness. It is talking about any kind of difficulty. We could be suffering for our faith. We could be like the apostles who were thrown in jail. And that would, that would be what this is talking about. So the word suffering here means any difficulty, anything that comes into our life of trouble. In fact, if you have an NIV translation of the Bible, I think the word there is trouble in your translation. Any of those words fit, and here's the response. Pray. 
In fact, in the original Greek language, uh, there's no mincing of words. It's not like in my translation, he should pray. It's just pray. Here's the response that God wants to build into our lives, that we get to the point where our default mechanism, our coping mechanism, the first thing that we you know, look for in our lives is whatever difficulty, whatever trouble we're going through, whatever weight comes into our life, whatever burden comes into our life, whatever unexpected news, whether that's I'm losing my job, uh, my, my boss is expecting too much from me, uh, I've got this in my life, I've got a family member who's freaking me out right now, whatever, the Bible says here's how we should handle it, pray pray. In fact, this whole passage really emphasizes prayer. Talk to God. Again, a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about handling anxiety and stress, I said, you know, for, for I know for me, sometimes in my life, it was like that was the last thing I did. I tried to figure it out myself. I tried to work it out myself or I'd tell everybody else about it. The last person I would talk to was God. And God here is saying through James that talking to God and praying should actually be the first thing that I do when any difficulty, any trouble, any suffering comes into my life of anything that anyone among you who's suffering pray. And that should be the individual response of every Christian to whatever bad thing comes into our lives is let's start praying about it. Second, is anyone in good spirits? Is anyone happy? Is there good things happening in our life? Then the second response is sing. Sing. In fact, I haven't quite confirmed this yet. But I believe that sing is one of the most often commands in Scripture. That God says to his people, sing. Sing. The word here is saleto. It's a word where we get our word psalm from. In fact, isn't it interesting that the largest book in the Bible is the book of psalms or songs. 150, right smack dab in the middle of our Bible. A book that a lot of Christians go to all over and over again. Because the Psalms not only speak to us, they speak for us. They say things that many times we're trying to find the words to say to God and, and cry out from the depths of our heart. And we start reading a Psalm and go, that's it, God. That's what I'm trying to say to you. They're expressing joy. They could be expressing frustration. They could be expressing anger, discouragement, whatever. There's so many different and varied emotions expressed in these songs or psalms. And, and we found that throughout history. That's why even today and throughout history, people who have written songs and who sing songs, many times it's the overflow of what they're experiencing in their life and in their heart. And they're just letting it go. And that's what God says. And, and notice the balance. He says, look, I'm not a God that expects you to always be up. I understand there's going to be days of difficulty and suffering and trouble. And if you're going through times like that right now, I don't expect you to feel like singing, but I do expect you to pray. And then there's those days, though, where I do feel like, you know, you've got a lot to sing about. You've got a lot to praise about. You've got a lot to show me the appreciation here. So let's sing about it and let's 
Let's express that. And that's exactly what James is saying here. Those should be our responses as individual Christians in our lives. Days are gone bad, let's pray about it. Days are gone good, let's sing about it. And that singing and praying should be characteristic of the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. And again, we might not be able to control what's coming into our life. But we can always choose the response we're giving to that situation. And James is saying through the power that God can give us, let's pray about it and let's sing about it. Verse 14, is anyone among you ill? Now again, I can understand why when someone comes to a verse like that and they see the word ill in my translation, I use the net Bible, they would say it has to do with physical suffering, has to do with physical ailment. But again, if you study the grammar, if you study the word, the word ill does not mean just physical suffering. It it really speaks about being weighed down by any kind of burden, by, by any kind of weight, by getting to the point where I've carried whatever. Whether it's I have an intense illness, I have a prolonged illness physically, or something else in my life that I have carried around to the point where it is weighing me down, it is causing discouragement, it might be even leading to depression, and I am being weighed down to the point where I realize I can't deal with this on my own, I need help. And I'm praying to God... But I also know that many times God works through others to encourage me as well. Many times the encouragement of God comes through his people. We are his, his hands and his ears and his eyes and arms and all of that. And so the cool thing is here, as he starts out in verse 13, he's telling us how we should respond individually. And then when he gets to verse 14, it's sort of a bridge because at the beginning of the verse, he's saying, here's how I want you to respond individually as well when you feel overwhelmed with something. But then on the backside of it, he's also saying other people should be called in to help you carry this load because it's too heavy for you to carry. That's why notice he goes on and says in verse 14, anyone who gets to this point, And I believe, again, he's talking about somebody who's so discouraged, so weighed down, that they can't get to church. All right? That that, that they either spiritually, emotionally, or physically, they can't even come to church to be ministered to. So notice the responsibility is on the person who's suffering to call for the elders of the church so that they should come to him or her and pray for him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. So don't miss that either. Because a lot of times I think members in the church think that elders or leaders in the church are omniscient and know everything and know how much we're hurting. And and shouldn't shouldn't they be ministering to me? Well, notice the responsibility in the Bible is on that person. And not just any person, not just the person who's going through you know, recovering from surgery or something. We're talking here, this word ill in verse 14 is about somebody who is so broken, so down, 
so discouraged, so weighed down by this, that they need other people to come in and help begin to refresh and restore and encourage and comfort and build them back up again and get them back into the to the way of living, if you will. And maybe even back into fellowship and all of that. This is a person who's really in need of that. Now, to, to illustrate this principle, keep your finger in James and go back to the New Testament book of Galatians. To Galatians chapter 6. I want to show you a seeming contradiction here. In Galatians chapter 6, two verses. Verse 2. Paul says, carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And then look at verse 5. Each one will carry his own load. Wait a minute. Sounds like you're telling me in one place to carry other people's burdens, and then in the other place you're telling everybody to carry their own load. Here's how this ties into what James is saying. Let's go with verse 5 of Galatians 6 first. That verse is teaching me... That whatever responsibilities I take on in my life, I'm responsible for those. I I shouldn't expect somebody else to be the husband for my wife, Lisa, and the the father for my children, Stephen and Beth Ann. Uh, I shouldn't expect somebody else to shoulder the responsibility of being the teaching pastor at Cornerstone Christian Fellowship. These are responsibilities that I have taken on, and I'm responsible to carry my own load. Those are my responsibilities. I own them I need to take care of them and not expect somebody else to carry those loads for me. But verse 2, the verse before that, is saying that all of us have times in our life where we have extra heavy loads. We have something that comes into our life unexpectedly or whatever and is just dumped in our lap and it's like way beyond what our normal load is what our normal responsibility is and then God is saying to all of us it is then our responsibility when we see our brothers and sisters or anyone having those extra heavy loads in their life to be willing to carry those burdens can I tell you that's in, in some way, what James is trying to say in James chapter 5, when he's saying this person that I'm describing in James chapter 5 verse 14, that's translated ill in my translation, is someone who is experiencing Galatians 6 two. They are under an extra heavy load in their life. It may be physical, but it also may be spiritual. It also may be emotional. It can be all kinds of things that that is getting them to the point where they are weighed down and they need somebody else to come in from outside and help them carry the load. Before we go back to James, and that reminds me of two things very practically for all of us as Christians, I think that James is saying to us. One, I need to be humble enough. I need to get to the point where I have humility enough that when I have those extra heavy loads come into my life, I need to be willing to ask for help. I need to be willing to call the elders or even get to the point where I call fellow Christians or call some brothers and sisters in Christ and say, you know what? I'm drowning. I'm being weighed down here. I need your help. Can you help me. Sort of those stretcher bearers, if you will. Those people who hopefully all of us have a couple of them in our life that if they're just a phone call away, they're just an email away, a text away, whatever, of of 
coming and helping us when that extra heavy load comes into our life. And we got to be willing to do that. We can't sit back and complain if we're not willing to reach out at those times and say, I need help. Where pride gets so, you know, so much a part of us that we have too much pride to ask others to help. Remember, as much as we like God to use us to minister to others, we've got to also understand that it's cool to have God minister to us through others as well. And we've got to have both. We've got to be willing to let God use us to minister to others and others to minister to us at times. And that's one of the dynamics that James and Paul and Galatians is talking about. And then the other, obviously, opposite side of that is, are we that person? Are we that kind of Christian that Paul talks about in Galatians 6.2 or James talks about where somebody would call us and say, hey, I've had this happen to me. It's... It's way bigger than I can handle on my own. Could you help? Could you help? And so that's part of what's going on back in the book of James. So if you go back there to James chapter 5 verse 14, he does specifically say in this context to call for the elders of the church. And here's what the elders of the church are to do when they go to the home or residence of this individual. The first thing they should do is they should pray for him. Prayer. There it is. Somebody suffering, going through difficulty, being weighed down. Pray. Because prayer is so important. And we're going to see this as we move through this passage. Pray for each other. Pray for one another. In fact, again, I've used this scripture over and over again. Luke chapter 18. Jesus said in verse 1, Men ought always to pray and not to lose heart or faint or give up. And then he, at the very end of that passage, he says, but when the Son of Man comes back, will he find faith on the earth? And it seems like that's sort of disjointed, the question that Jesus asked with praying and not fainting. But I think he's reminding us that to pray is to have faith. If I have no faith, I'm not going to talk to God because I really don't believe that he cares, that he loves me, that he's concerned about me, that he's going to listen to me, whatever. So if I don't have faith, then I'm not going to pray. But my faith will fuel my prayer life. If I truly am a person of faith and my faith is being strengthened and my faith is growing, then I think my prayer life will begin to grow as well. And I will pray because I understand the promises of God and the character of God. And I know that I can talk to God about anything at any time, anywhere, and I can go to him. And he is my sympathetic high priest. And I can come to the throne of grace and find help The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.16, anytime I need help, I can go to his throne and find that help. So he says to the elders, pray for him. And then he says, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Anointing with oil. Let's talk about that for a moment. To come to the right interpretation of this. There's two words for anoint in the Greek language. One is the word that's used for a ceremonial anointing. Um, And there are some people that interpret this passage that way. But the word that is used here is not the word for ceremonial anointing. It is actually a word that was used in Greek for trainers training athletes to giving them a rubdown. It would sort of be the word that we would use today for masseuses. 
when you go to get a massage, I'm getting anointed. So the next time you go to get a massage, just tell your, yeah, I'm going to get an anointing today. Because that's, and, and here's the idea. Again, here's my understanding of what James is saying. Remember, the person is not maybe just physically sick. It could be a person who's discouraged, who's depressed, who's weighed down by something. And they can, so when the elders come and pray, they are also to come and anoint. And, and the whole idea there is whatever that means in our context of bringing refreshment and bringing restoration and, and encouraging them in some way. For instance, we do this without even thinking about it in, in our culture, probably more so than we even do now, although we still do it. Whenever somebody is down or out or they've just been through surgery or something, what, a lot of times we get together and we take meals to them. Even that would apply here. That's not the interpretation, but that would certainly fit an application of anointing because it has to deal with going to someone and, in a sense, relieving them in some way, giving some kind of refreshment or encouragement to them and and trying to lift their spirits in some way. That's what's implied here. Because notice, he says to the elders of the church, he, he, he doesn't, say, you know, to some, someone specific to, to heal them, says the elders of the church, you pray and you anoint. In fact, notice then in verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, again, there's been a lot of debate about this verse. Does this verse teach First of all, that that means that if I just pray and believe in faith that God will heal everybody that I asked him to heal. And is it true that we can even develop a theology that teaches that really it's never God's will that anybody is sick or or goes through any kind of physical ailment? Because much of what I hear out there today on some television shows and, and reading books and stuff, you do get that theology coming through. And, and if you find out where they base that on, a lot of times they'll go back to this passage, to James chapter 5 and verse 15. And, and they take this as a promise that if they just had enough faith, and if they just pray over this person who's sick, that the Lord promises to raise him up. All right, let's talk about that for a moment. First of all, here's one of the problems I have with interpreting it that way. My Bible teaches me that God has appointed all of us to die. So that means at some point in my life, I'm going to have to get sick and die of something. So I don't see how you reconcile the fact that you are building a theology that says it's never God's will for any of us to ever get sick. And it's always God's will to heal If you have to deal with this whole thing hanging out there, we call death. You know, where does that come into play? Then let's talk about Jesus. For every blind person that Jesus healed, he left hundreds of blind people unhealed. For every deaf person that Jesus healed, there were hundreds of people that were deaf that he didn't heal. For every Lazarus that he rose from the dead, there were hundreds of thousands in his day that he did not rise from the dead. He chose... To heal certain individuals because John says they were signs. 
signs showing that he had the power of the Messiah and that he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. But it wasn't like Jesus even came to heal everybody. Everybody that he healed a lot of people, but not everybody that he touched. And then you talk about Paul. No doubt about it. The Bible teaches unequivocally in Acts, say, 19, verses 11 and 12. Paul had the supernatural gift of being able to heal. And yet when his friend Timothy is suffering with stomach ailments, what's Paul telling him in 1 Timothy 5.23? He says, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your frequent infirmities. In other words, go to the doctor or take some medicine for it. I don't think Paul's being unspiritual there, but I think this is where you have this way over the other side where you have groups of people in our society who even get to the point where they say, if I'm sick and I'm even dying, I'm not going to the doctor. I'm just going to pray and I'm just going to leave it in the Lord's hands. You see, my Bible to me teaches me that God uses doctors and God uses medicine. God, if I take an aspirin and it gets rid of my headache, God's the one that gets the glory for it because he created aspirin. That's, it all goes back to him anyway. If I go to a doctor and that doctor helps me to feel better, God gets the glory for him because God gave him the wisdom to be able to do what he does anyway. It all goes back to God anyway. It's just God can use different avenues. In fact, Luke, one of the followers and disciples of Christ, was a physician, you see. So I just I have trouble, again, with reconciling the interpretation that some folks land on here, and how do we reconcile that with other passages of Scripture? For instance, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul said, I left Trophimus at Miletus sick. I didn't heal him. And then even Paul himself. Paul had a thorn in the flesh, which I believe was some kind of physical infirmity. And Paul appealed to God. God, will you please take this away? And what was God's response? No. But my grace is sufficient because I know that you having that thorn in the flesh is actually going to be spiritually beneficial for you. It's going to be better for you to have it and you experience my grace and I take that away. So again, I think when you take the totality of Scripture and you begin to compare Scripture with Scripture, that you have to land somewhere that makes sense and it doesn't contradict other passages of Scripture on this whole healing thing. Now let me say this. Because I've had to, I believe unequivocally that God can heal anybody of anything at any time he wants to. But that's up to God. That is up to God to do it, you see. And God can do it. But God can also choose not to do it, like in the case of Paul. And, and the thing that, that I have trouble with is if, if I'm teaching that if somebody just has enough faith, and they pray this prayer of faith and that they'll be healed and that they don't get healed or their relative doesn't get healed or whatever, their friend doesn't get healed, that puts them in an awful cruel position. That makes them feel even worse than what they already do because they already feel bad enough and now we're telling them, if you just had more faith and prayed more effectively, you wouldn't be sick or this person would be well. And so we try really hard to somehow coerce God into to doing what we want him to do. And then when it doesn't work out, it's almost like it's back on us and it makes us feel even worse. Now, I don't think that's the teaching of scripture. See, I think that's what separates the God of the Bible from the gods that men and women have created down through history. 
The God of the Bible says, trust me. The other gods that men and women have created down through history need to be coerced. They need to be manipulated. They need to be, you know, whipped into helping me out. God doesn't have to be that way. God just says, trust me. So I think the prayer of faith here in verse 15 is simply praying in faith that God will do what is best, whatever it is. And that God is working, has been working, and will work in my life and in that other person's life if they're being weighed down. And God certainly, whatever he's going to do, if he chooses not to say physically heal them, then like Paul, he'll give them the grace to deal with it and to be a testimony for him. But in some way, he will lift them up, which is why in verse 15, this is very important, it says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, first of all, again, proper interpretation. The word sick, again, I realize... If I see the word sick in my English Bible, I'm going to think it has to do with somebody being physically sick. The only other time this word is used in the Greek language, in the Greek New Testament, it's used back in the book of Hebrews. So I'd like to show you this parallel passage. Go back just one book to Hebrews chapter 12 and look at how it was translated there. Hebrews chapter 12 and look at verse 3. This is talking about enduring and persevering. And he says, think of him who endured such opposition against himself by sinners so that you may not grow weary in your souls and give up. The word weary there in Hebrews 12, 3 is the same Greek word that is translated sick in James chapter 5, verse 15. It's the only two places that that Greek word is used in the Greek New Testament. Only two places. Translated one place weary, another place it's translated sick. The meaning is the same. The translators chose to translate it a different English word. And I realize that can cause confusion. That's why it behooves us to study and to compare and to make sure that we get the proper interpretation. Because I think if you go back to Hebrews 12 verse 3, that that's more of what James is saying here in the context. He's talking about somebody who's being weighed down, somebody who's discouraged, somebody who is weary and ready to give up, and they need to call others in to help them, and they need to call on God. And the Bible says... That as we pray in faith, we've got to believe that God has been working in their life to lift up their spirits and to raise them up. He will raise them up. He has been working. He will be working. He'll continue to work because God is always working. And that's what the prayer of faith is. The prayer of faith is believing that even though I can't see God is at work, I've got to, by faith, trust and have confidence that God is always at work. That's exactly what Jesus said in John 5, 17 when he said, my father and I are always working. That's why, you know, you can be praying for an unsafe family member or friend or you can be praying for somebody and, and in our limited scope, we might say, God, it doesn't appear like you're doing anything. That's where the prayer of faith comes in because the prayer of faith would say to God, God, I know. Because of your character, I know who you are and what you're all about. That you are doing everything you possibly can beyond uh, violating their free will. That you will do everything you can possibly do to draw them to yourself without violating their... And that's the prayer of faith. Knowing that God 
is always working in people's lives. And he's working down here where we can't see it and where they may not even express it. But the prayer of faith is believing that God is always working and that God's will is in all situations that he does want to raise us up. Verse 15. I want to camp there for a little bit tonight, at least for five minutes, because it's really important. God wants to raise you up tonight. Part of the reason why hopefully you come to the mind is to be raised up. And the word just simply means to be restored, aroused, refreshed, encouraged. That's what God wants to do to everyone, regardless of what situation they are in. That when he looks down from heaven and sees people who are weighed down, who are weary, who are ready to give up, who have this this burden in their life that they can't carry on their own, God wants to come into their life and he wants to bring other people into their life that will encourage them, carry, help carry that burden and help lift them back up and restore them and raise them back up. And with that in mind, I want to take you quickly to the Old Testament book of Psalms and show you this. Go back to Psalm 3, verse 3. Psalm 3, verse 3. We'll sing about it, huh? Psalm 3, verse 3. But you, Lord, are a shield that protects me. You are my glory and the one who restores me. In the old King James Version of the Bible, it literally said the lifter of my head. I love that. I love that because isn't it true when we're discouraged? What happens to our head? Our head goes down. And it's a cool picture that God wants to come into our lives and he literally wants to lift my head. He doesn't want to see one of his children's head hanging down, discouraged. He wants to come into our life and he wants to raise us up. He wants to lift our heads. He wants to restore us and refresh us. Then go to a very familiar psalm, Psalm 23. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He takes me to lush pastures. He leads me to refreshing water. He restores my strength. There it is. The shepherd who takes the sheep and wants to refresh and raise them up and restore them. You see. Then if you go over to verse 5. You prepare a feast before me in plain sight of my enemies. You refresh my head with oil. My cup is completely full. See, God wants to have a refreshing ministry in our lives. He wants to raise us up. He wants to lift our head. He wants to do that for us on a daily basis. But one of the ways he does that is when we're in trouble, when we're facing difficulty, when we're suffering in any way, pray. And through prayer, God will begin to minister to us. And then hopefully, too, others will be obedient to come around us at those times we need them to carry that extra heavy load like it says in Galatians 6 2 and and help shoulder that burden as well Psalm 145 just a couple other verses these have always meant a lot to me that's why I'm sharing them with you tonight Psalm 145 verse 14 the Lord supports all who fall can we just stop there can I just say amen to that Because Jeff Royce has fallen a lot in my life. And yet the Bible says the Lord doesn't kick me when I'm down. That's what the devil does. 
When I fall, the devil wants to kick me when I'm down. He wants to keep me when I'm down. He wants to keep me discouraged, depressed, and all that. It's the Lord who wants to come into my life and bring others into my life and use me in other people's lives to refresh and restore and lift and all of that. So the Lord supports all who fall and lifts up all who are bent over. Wow. Good verses. And then look at verse 3 of Psalm 147. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. Wow. I love that. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. See, these are the ways that God raises him up. Uh, Folks, please hear my heart. I'm not saying that James 5, verses 13 through 18, cannot be applied to people who are physically suffering. But I'm saying don't limit it that passage just to talk about physical suffering and healing. It's talking about so much more. It's on such a broader scope and a wider range of ministry that God wants to have in our lives and wants us to have in other people's lives than just talking about physical suffering. But I know that's where we all focus. I know that because I've been a pastor for 25 years. And I know when I used to do midweek Bible studies and we used to have our prayer list that 95% of the prayer requests that Christians would ask us to pray for as a church was always physical. Very few were spiritual needs of people. Very few were emotional needs of people. Most of the time, when you and I as Christians pray for each other, it's always on the physical level. And I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for Christians physically. But I'm saying when you read the prayers of Paul in the New Testament, as he prays for fellow Christians, he does just the opposite. You very rarely see in the New Testament where he's praying for the physical well-being of Christians. In fact, even in Philippians chapter 2, when Epaphroditus came to visit Paul, Paul even said, he almost died while he was with me. But thank God that God raised him up and, and healed him and restored him and all of that. So please understand my heart here tonight that I think that it can be applied that way, but I'm just asking us not to limit this passage to just that. So then if you go back to James chapter 5, after the Lord raises him up, notice also that this has to be more than just physical because then it says, and if he's committed sins at the end of verse 15, he will be forgiven. Well, I thought he was already forgiven. Yeah, but you and I all know that we can get to points in our life, whether it's through sin and disobedience or whether it's through just being weighed down by the cares of life, that that we can have this weight on top of us and we can have guilt and we can have shame and we can have a lack of release. And and again, the the devil will try to accuse us and and bring back to our minds those sins that God threw in the depths of the sea long ago and bring them up anymore. And, And what James here is simply saying is hopefully the encouragement of God and the encouragement of others will hopefully help us to get to the point where we accept God's forgiveness, or as we say it, for, for, learn to forgive ourselves. I don't like that term. I, I like the term better, accept God's forgiveness. Because to me, it's not so much that I've learned to forgive myself as much as by faith. I learned to accept what God said. God said he would forgive me and that the guilt and all of that should be gone. And let's face it, that's one of the weights that sometimes even we as Christians live with. We live with the guilt of our past. We've still never by faith just allowed that to be flung off 
And part of the ministry that God wants to do in our lives in order to raise us up and lift us up and lift our heads and walk the way God wants us to walk is to learn once and for all that our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ, Romans 8, 1. And let's release that and not allow our spiritual enemy to throw those sins up in our face ever again. Amen? All right. Verse 16, so confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. In the body, God wants to see his body mutually encouraging each other and, and, and building unity and, and ministering to each other. And one of the ways that we do that is by taking responsibility for what we've done, by admitting it when we've made a mistake, And saying to those that have been affected by the choices that we've made, I'm sorry I was wrong. That's what confessing your sins means. And notice it's mutual confession. It's mutual confession. It's that there should be this climate within the body of Christ that if I've wronged you, I should come to you. I shouldn't tell the whole church, but I should come to you and I should say, I'm sorry. I said something to you I should have never said. I I apologize for that. that. To own up. To the mistakes that we, in humility, going back to the humility of calling on others to help us, also having the humility to admit when we've been wrong and when we've wronged somebody else in the body of Christ and to go to them. What that does is that promotes unity. That, that promotes wholeness. That promotes healing. And that's what the word healed here means. It doesn't mean, again, just a physical healing. It's talking about a wholeness in the body of Christ. A unity where the body of Christ is one. That's why he says here in verse 16, don't only confess your sins to one another, but pray for one another. That we are taught by the word of God to pray for each other. To pray for each other. So that we may be healed. Again, the translation of that word is to be whole. To be whole. God wants his body to be whole. Not fragmented. Not split. Not splintered. Not with this schism and division and all of this. But to be whole and unified. We're going to see that when we get into the book of Judges next year. And then... I love this. The prayer of a righteous person has great effectiveness. Wow. He's just reminding us, you know what? Prayer works. And here's how it works. Well, some Christians come to this and go, well, you know what? That's good for those really righteous people, but that's not good for me. Listen, can I just... The only way any of us are righteous is because of the righteousness of Jesus, not our own righteousness. So when he talks about righteous here, he's talking about those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So therefore, he's talking about any Christian. And he's basically saying to any Christian, your prayer can be highly effective. Because you and I don't come to God anyway in our own righteousness. We never could. We come in the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So when it's talking about the prayer of a righteous person, don't think he's talking about certain Christians. He's talking about every Christian here. 
And he's saying our prayer life can be very effective. And here's how it's effective. The word effective is a word where we get the word energy from. And literally what I believe James is saying is that prayer energizes us. Prayer energizes us. You see, so that God may not change the circumstances, but give me the energy and the strength to deal with the circumstances. Prayer energizes. When Paul went to God in prayer and said, God, take this thorn in the flesh away, God said, I won't take the thorn away, but I will energize you. My grace is sufficient for you. I will give you what you need to deal with the circumstances. Because I do want to raise you up. I, want, I don't want you to live your life with your head down, Paul. I want you to live your life with your head up. And with the energy that prayer can bring into our lives as Christians, there is nothing that God asks us to do that we can't do when we're on our knees getting that kind of energy. That's why he goes on and he uses Elijah as an example. He says, Elijah was just like us, a human being like us, because he doesn't want us to get the idea that, again, it has to be these certain people that have this certain pipeline or connection to God that have the energy. No, any Christian has the energy through prayer available to them. So Elijah was a man like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and there was no rain on the land for three years and six months. Then he prayed again and the sky gave rain and the land sprouted with the harvest. That's powerful, right? Yeah, but if you go back to 1 Kings, don't miss this. The reason why Elijah prayed for it not to rain for three and a half years is because he knew that's what God's will was. God said, if my people are going to be disobedient, I'm going to pull, I'm going to pull the rain away. I'm going to, I'm going to destroy their crops. I'm going to, I'm going to discipline them for going into idolatry and for forsaking me. So Elijah knew exactly that, that because of his walk with God, he knew exactly what to pray for. And he also knew at the end of three and a half years that it was God's will to bring the rain back and to restore the land again. So don't think that somehow Elijah was doing this on his own. Elijah was doing this in communion and concert with God. He knew what to pray for because he was walking with God. But notice the prayer energized him. The prayer energized Elijah. Now when we go back here in just a minute, yes, it energized Elijah in a physical way. But what I want all of us to see here tonight is this. The power of prayer is such, and God has made it such, that when you and I pray, it does energize us. Whether we need physical energy, emotional energy, or spiritual energy, or whatever kind of energy you're talking about, Prayer can energize us to accomplish whatever God is asking or calling us to do. Now, the illustration is physical, but I want you to go back there anyway to 1 Kings chapter 18 as we wrap this up tonight. 1 Kings chapter 18, all the way back towards the beginning of the Old Testament. And in this passage of Scripture, this is the passage here beginning in chapter 18, verse 41, where the drought was going to be over. And Elijah began to pray that God would bring rain after three and a half years. So that's where we pick it up. The same thing that James is referring to over in James chapter 5. And Elijah told Ahab, go on up and eat and drink for the sound of a heavy rainstorm can be heard. So Ahab went on up to eat and drink while Elijah climbed to the uh, top of Mount Carmel. He bent down toward the ground and put his face between his knees. That meant he was praying, by the way. He told his servant, go on up and look in the direction of the sea. So he went on up and looked and reported, and there is nothing 
he said. Wait a minute. Elijah was praying for it to rain, but he wasn't seeing anything yet. That's where the prayer of faith comes in, even with Elijah. Because Elijah knew that this is what God wanted. And even though he didn't immediately see it, he knew that God was eventually going to start some clouds out there and there was going to be some rain coming. But notice even, God didn't immediately answer his prayer. It wasn't like as soon as he started praying for rain that all of a sudden the clouds, the, the sky gets dark all of a sudden and the rain dumps. There's nothing out there yet. So notice, seven times Elijah sent him to look. Can I just tell you one of the faults that I have in my life is I don't have enough faith to keep praying when I don't see what's happening. Which goes back to the whole concept of the prayer of faith that I've got to get to the point where I believe God is working even though I don't see him working. Because we are to walk by faith, not by sight. And Elijah had the faith to keep praying even though seven times he sent his servant up on the mountain and the guy goes, nothing. I got nothing. And I'm sure even he's beginning to think, maybe Elijah doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe Elijah's got this message mixed up with God. Maybe he's got it wrong. And Elijah just kept on his knees and kept praying because he knew God was eventually going to bring rain. But God was building faith in his servant Elijah and God was building faith in all the servants around him. And the seventh time the servant said in verse 44, look, even then a small cloud The size of the palm of a man's hand is rising up from the sea. Wow, that's going to dump a lot of rain. There had to be faith that even though it started out really small, wow, what was coming? Can I tell you, don't despise little things. God may start out something very small. It's up to him how big it gets. And it rose up from the sea. And then Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up the chariots and go down so that the rain won't overtake you. Now, again, all these people had to be saying, there's one cloud out there the size of the palm of a man's hand. And you're telling me to get out because the rain's going to overtake me. They had to be like the people in Noah's day when Noah said, you better get on the ark because it's going to flood. And they're all like, you're crazy. Meanwhile, the sky was covered with dark clouds. The wind blew. And there was a heavy rainstorm. Ahab rode toward Jezreel. Now notice, don't miss this, verse 46. And the Lord energized Elijah with power. So much power that he tucked his robe into his belt and ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Now don't miss the context here. Elijah was energized with power. But what was he just doing? He's been praying. And again, I don't always, I'm not always equating power with physical power and physical energy, but it certainly can be part of it. Now, there's some even Christians that read this verse and so go, I can't buy that. I can't believe that. Because when they find out that Jezreel was probably 25 or 30 miles away, that means that a, a human being outran a chariot of horses. For 25 miles? No way. Can I remind all of us? My God can do anything. And if my God wants to make a human being be able to outrun a chariot, my God can do it. And it's just simply a very vivid picture from God to us about when you and I are willing to be obedient and pray. That the Lord will raise us up. That's always his desire. 
God's desire is to never let any of us down. God is always the lifter of our heads, the one who wants to come into our lives and encourage and refresh and restore and revive. And he will also use others to do that as well. And God wants to energize you and I. And I want to be energized. Because the world in which I live and the challenges with which we face today, I believe we as Christians need more of the energy of God in our lives as much as any group of Christians and followers of God ever did down through history. And, and that's why I believe it is imperative for us as Christians to make prayer a priority in our lives. Because James is, one of the things James is saying here to us tonight is don't forget, God energizes us through our prayer life. God wants to energize you tonight and lift you up. And I hope you have been energized and revived and refreshed and encouraged by being here tonight. So I hope you'll come back next week to be once again revived and energized and encouraged. All right, let's pray. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for, Lord, just caring about us so much that, Lord, you give us the proper responses here to each and every of life's situations. When we're going through difficulty, trouble, and suffering, pray. When we're going through good times, sing. When we have a weight in our life that's weighing us down to the point where we can't handle it on our own, it's a load too big for us to handle, Call on others to help us. Call on others to pray for us. Call on others, Lord, to come and refresh us in some way. And Lord, all along, may we be reminded that the prayer of the righteous is highly effective. And it can energize us. It can give us an energy beyond ourselves. And that, Lord, remind us even this week that if we're down, our heads are hanging, we are weary and we're about ready to give up that if we're just willing to look to you by faith, you will raise us up. You are the resurrection and the life. And help, Lord, to infuse life and energy into your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, I love you. Have a great week. I'll see you here next Tuesday.